0: Regardless of your spiritual condition, if you will repent and humble yourself before God and turn from your sin, God will hear your prayer.
1: Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in South Lake, Texas. Hi, I'm Bill Wright. On today's program, Tom continues in our 12-part current series titled, An Aerial View of the Old Testament. We're currently examining the monarchy of Israel in the books of 1st and 2nd Kings. Why are the books of kings in the Old Testament at all? Well, as you'll learn today, they're there to remind the Jewish people who were in captivity in Babylon of their consistent violation of the Mosaic Covenant that they had pledged to keep. And ultimately, an object lesson in repentance and restoration while they were in exile in Babylon. But how did they get there? Why exactly were they exiled to Babylon? And how did the monarchy in Israel come to an end? Let's join our teacher to find out here on The Word Unleashed.
0: We are looking from about 30,000 feet at the Old Testament. We find ourselves tonight in part four of what I have promised you would be a five or six-part study, rather, of the entire Old Testament, and we're on course. So I just want you to know that tonight we'll look at the divided monarchy, the period of the kings, and next week or the next time we study this together, we'll look at the the exile and the restoration when the children of Israel return to the land. Then we will look a sixth message at the message of the Old Testament. What is the core message of the Old Testament and why is it there? We'll also look at the theme of each of the books briefly so you can put the whole thing in its context. So don't miss uh, the, the remaining messages because they'll draw hopefully everything to a, to a conclusion. But we're, we're working our way through the historical overview of the Old Testament. And when you look at Old Testament history, as I've told you before, there are nine major movements of Old Testament history. Universal dealings in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. The rest of Genesis marks the patriarchal period, the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph. And then in Exodus 1, we have 400 years encapsulated in a single chapter, slavery in Egypt. Beginning in Exodus 2 and running through the rest of the Pentateuch, that's a word for the first five books of the Old Testament, you have the Exodus under Moses. Joshua is the conquest and division of Canaan, and then after the land is conquered, Israel slips into the darkest period of her history, the period of the Judges, recorded in Judges and in Ruth, as well as in the first eight, eight chapters of 1 Samuel. Last time, we looked at the monarchy. We began to look in detail at the monarchy. We looked at what's called the United Monarchy, beginning in 1051 and running for 120 years. The kings ruled over all the nation of Israel. Tonight, we will move to the second stage of the monarchy, what is called the divided monarchy, when the kingdom of Israel is split into two parts with two different kingdoms and two different kings. The eighth period of or movement of Old Testament history is the Babylonian exile and then finally you have the restoration period and we'll look at those Lord willing the next time we're able to study this together now last time we ended with the life and reign of Solomon his death marks the end of the united monarchy so one king ruled over all Israel if you can put this into context One king over all Israel for only 120 years of her entire history. 40 years under Saul, 40 years under David, and 40 years under Solomon. Under their rule, a central government was established and strengthened. Israel's border was extended So the united monarchy, those 120 years, was in many senses the high point of Israel's history. If the period of the judges was the low point, the united monarchy, particularly under David and even the early years of Solomon, were the height of Israel's history. But upon Solomon's death, the glory days ended, and we begin the period of the divided monarchy it's recorded for us in the book of kings as well as in the book of chronicles and chronicles serves a different purpose we'll look at that when we get to the restoration period but first kings 12 begins the divided monarchy after the death of solomon and it runs all the way through the end of second kings now why are the book of is the book of kings it's really one book we call it first and second but why is it there its purpose is threefold, to remind the Jewish people who were in captivity in Babylon of their consistent violation of the Mosaic Covenant that they agreed to keep, to show them that the exile they were experiencing was consistent with the covenant. God had promised cursing for disobedience. He had promised hardship and trouble and even ultimately exile, and their exile was consistent with that covenant they entered into. And, of course, ultimately, it was to encourage their repentance while they sat in exile in Babylon, thinking about, contemplating, how did we get here? Now, when you look at the book of First and Second Kings, essentially this is how it's outlined. 1 Kings, you have the kingdom united under Solomon in the first 11 chapters, and then the kingdom divided with many different kings, beginning in chapter 12 through chapter 22. That continues into 2 Kings, but you really could say the kingdom divided and Israel falls in the first 17 chapters. It's in chapter 17 that the north falls, and then in chapters 18 to 25, Judah survives, but ultimately falls herself. And if you don't understand those designations, stay with me. You will before we're done tonight. Now, we finished with Solomon, and we finished with his accommodation of his foreign wives, those wives he, entered in, he married as he entered into alliances with foreign countries. They became to him more than the seals of those covenants. They pulled his heart away from God, and he built places of worship, idolatrous places of worship so that his wives would have a place to worship, and in so doing, he terribly dishonored God. He facilitated idolatry in Israel, and God determines to take most of the kingdom away from Solomon's descendants. Look at 1 Kings chapter 11. 1 Kings chapter 11, and you see that God has determined this even before the end of Solomon's life. Look especially at verse 29. There was a man in Solomon's employ who was over the forced labor, and his name was Jeroboam. It came about, verse 29 of 1 Kings 11 says, that when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem, that the prophet Ahijah found him on the road. Ahijah had clothed himself with a new cloak, and both of them were alone in the field. Then Ahijah took hold of that new cloak, and he tore it into 12 pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, Take ten pieces, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and give you ten tribes. Why? Verse 33, because they have forsaken me and have worshipped all of these idols in the place of me. Nevertheless, verse 34, I will not take the whole kingdom out of Solomon's hand, but I will make him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of my servant David, whom I chose who observe my commandments and my statutes. But I will take the kingdom from his son's hand and give it to you, even ten tribes. But to his son I will give one tribe, that my servant David may have a lamp always before me in Jerusalem, even as God had promised David. So God had determined that Israel would be divided. How did he accomplish that? He did it through the sin of Solomon's son, Rehoboam. After Solomon's death, the people approach Solomon's son, Rehoboam, with a request that he lift some of the hardship that Solomon had exacted from them. You can read about it in 1 Kings 12, 1 to 5. Rehoboam then asks for three days to consider their request, and during those three days, you remember the story, Rehoboam consults with two groups. He consults with those older men who had served along with Solomon, He seeks advice about how to maintain his control over his father's kingdom. And the elders tell him, you must give the people some tax relief. That'd be nice, wouldn't it? And scale back significantly on the forced labor for various building projects. And if you will ease up on the requirements of them, they will serve you your entire life. Then he asked his peers for their counsel. And his peers said, Oh no, that's not the right response. If you want to establish your authority, you need to assert yourself. You need to flex your muscles. You tell them that if your father whipped them with whips, you'll whip them with scorpions. He took the advice of his peers. 1 Kings 12:15 says, "So the king did not listen to the people." And this is interesting, for it was a turn of events from the Lord that he might establish his word which the Lord spoke through Ahijah to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. God had a plan and Rehoboam's sin was the channel he used to effect that plan. As a result of God's decision accomplished through the decision, or sin, I should say, of Rehoboam, the ten northern tribes broke away from the line of David. They established their own separate kingdom in the north. They had their own royal family, and they even created their own religion and worship centers. So as of 931 B.C., There were two kingdoms of Israel, divided like this. You can see Judah, along with Judah, the tribe of Benjamin in the south, in the green. And then in the north, where you see the purple, was Israel. The north, as it's called, is also called Israel. And the south, as it's called, is also called Judah. So you can keep uh, those names straight. Now, let me compare these two dynasties for you, or these two kingdoms, rather, for you. This will give you an overview. In the north, you had Israel or Ephraim. In the south, you had what was called Judah. In the north, you had ten tribes. In the south, you had two tribes, primarily Judah, but with remnants of Benjamin. In the north, in the northern kingdom, understand that over its lifespan, there were nine different dynasties. Remember, what makes a king? What makes a king a king? He's succeeded by his son. A dynasty is when one family continues on the throne. In the north, there were nine different dynasties. You can just see the incredible upheaval that was a part of the north. In the south, you had one dynasty, the line of David, the family of David ruled on the throne. In the north, through its life, it had 19 kings, and its lifespan was a lot shorter than the south, 19 kings, In the south, you also had 19 kings and one queen. But in the north, there wasn't a single good king in the list, not one who obeyed God, not one who did what God had commanded. In the south, eight of those 19 were classified as good kings, and five of them were reformers. They instituted religious reforms. They were Asa, Jehoshaphat, Joash, Hezekiah, and Josiah. The high point of the south in the divided kingdom was a man named Josiah. The first king of the north is Jeroboam, and the first king of the south is Rehoboam. The north was destroyed in 722 B.C. by the massive kingdom of Assyria. And in the south, they were destroyed in 586, much later, by Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. So that's a comparison of the divided kingdom. Now, when Jeroboam, the very first king of the north, the one who got the ten tribes, got the ten pieces of cloth and the ten tribes, as king of the north, Jeroboam reasoned that if his people were always going south to Jerusalem, Jerusalem found itself in the southern portion, that if his people were always going there for worship, the appointed festivals and feasts, the two nations would ultimately be reunited and he would lose his authority. So he established in the north a substitute system of worship. He built gold images of calves in two places, Dan and Bethel. Now, you sometimes will hear about that. I just put these arrows here to mark them for you. You can see that Dan is way up in the north, up in the top part of the region of Israel. Bethel is right down near the southern portion of of the northern ten tribes or the northern kingdom. And I I threw Beersheba on there because sometimes you'll read in Scripture about something happening from Dan to Beersheba. That's shorthand for saying the entire country from top to bottom. So the important thing I want you to note, though, is that Jeroboam established replacement or substitute worship centers in Dan to make it convenient for people in the, in the northern portion of his kingdom, and in Bethel for people in the southern portion of his kingdom. And in those two places, he erected gold images of calves. It was, I think, still an intent to worship Yahweh, but with a new way, a new twist. It was syncretism. It was seeker sensitivity. It was an effort to keep the northern ten tribes from going to Jerusalem, Consolidating his own rule by doing that. Most scholars do not believe that initially, anyway, these golden calves represented idols, but rather they represented the animals on which Yahweh stood in invisible form. As I As we studied, when we studied idolatry together, that was common. It wasn't that the bull represented the god necessarily. In some cases, that was true. But often, the bull was simply like the the chariot on which he rode. It demonstrated some attribute of the deity, his power. And so, it's very possible that these calves were intended to be the animals on which Yahweh stood in invisible form. He built temples to house the images and he built altars. Because of this, many Levites ended up leaving Israel for Judah because he appointed priests from the common people and he absolutely ignored the Levites who were supposed to be priests. He created an annual feast and substituted it for the Feast of Tabernacles. He put it about one month later and said, you don't need to go down to Jerusalem. You just come and do this new thing. An important recurring phrase that occurs throughout the kings says this, speaking of one of the kings, he walked in the way of Jeroboam and in his sin, which he made Israel sin. God did not take this replacement religion lightly. In fact, he was deeply offended by it and brings his judgment to bear. Of the 18 kings that followed Jeroboam in the north, Every one of them, without exception, followed in Jeroboam's sinful, idolatrous path. They followed this to the T. They read the script, and they stuck with it. Now, when you look at the kings, there's going to be a quiz on this next week. I just want you to know that. No, I'm putting this up again, not so much because I intend to go through it in great detail, but just so you have in your notes when I print this out a comparative List of the kings of the divided kingdom. You'll see on the left are the kings of Judah, and I've tried to roughly correspond them to the kings of Israel when they ruled together. So you can kind of get a feel for when they ruled. And I'm not going to go through much of this, except I want to make one very interesting comment. As you look at these kings, and I'm going to go back and touch on a couple of them that are key. But as you look at these kings, first of all, you'll notice that Israel ends in 722. You see no kings after that. That's when the north was captured by Assyria and was taken off into captivity. Judah continues after the north falls, and that's why the line of kings continues down a little further. The second note I want you to see in this list of kings, and I wish we had time to look at this because it's fascinating. God promised that he would deal with each person based on his own obedience or disobedience, and the kings are complete proof of that. It's also proof that you cannot put someone in the right environment and expect automatically to turn out the right product. Because if you look at the kings, you will find that there are are righteous kings who have righteous sons. You will find that there are wicked kings who have wicked sons. You will also find that there are righteous kings who have wicked sons and wicked kings who have righteous sons. The point I want you to see is that as parents, we tend to think if we input a certain thing, we're going to get output B there is, or output A or whatever it is you're expecting, but there's no guarantee of that reality, and the kings are a very clear indication of that reality. God deals with each person based on the response of their own sinful heart to him. Now, when you look at the kings, the greatest crisis in the kings, the period of the kings, of the divided monarchy, came when Ahab of Israel, this is in the north, Ahab married a Zidonian, you know from history, a Phoenician on the coast of the Mediterranean there. Ahab of Israel married a Phoenician princess, and her name was Jezebel, not a name you want to choose for your daughter. Then Jezebel, this Phoenician princess, she moves into the palace in Israel with her upbringing, the faith that she had as a child, which was Baal worship. And she sets out to eradicate the worship of Yahweh in the northern kingdom and to institute the worship of her childhood and patron deity, Baal. But the problem didn't stay in the north. It also spread to the southern kingdom because Ahab and Jezebel conspired to marry their wicked daughter, Athaliah, to a king in the south. So they export their faith and all that they're doing to the south, and Athaliah marries Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. Elijah pronounced a curse uh, After his death, they receive a letter that he had written before his death pronouncing a curse on Jehoram for his sin. Now, what happens, though, is very tragic because now in the south, you have Jehoram, a king in the line of David, who's married Athaliah, the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel from the north, and they had a son named Ahaziah. And Ahaziah becomes king after Jehoram, his father, died. And here's what we read about this man. 2 Chronicles 22.4, he did evil in the sight of the Lord like, remember now, he's in the south. He did evil in the sight of the Lord like the house of Ahab in the north, for they were his counselors after the death of his father to his destruction. And shockingly, Athaliah, the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel in the north, eventually became the queen of the south the queen of Judah, a position that she held for six years. And perhaps the greatest crisis in Israel's history comes when Athaliah, the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, a Baal worshiper, seeks to obliterate the line of David, the line in which God promised the Messiah would come. She attempted to exterminate the Davidic line, and there was one survivor By God's providence, one final survivor, a young boy, was saved from the murderous plot. Look at Second Kings chapter 11, verse 1. When Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she rose and destroyed all the royal offspring. So she's trying to kill off the line of David. But Jehosheba, the daughter of King Joram, sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him from among the king's sons who were being put to death and placed him and his nurse in the bedroom. So they hid him from Athaliah and he was not put to death. So he was hidden with her in the house of the Lord six years, the entire time that Athaliah reigned in the south. Understand, that all Old Testament prophecy and God's eternal plan to have the Messiah come from David and the line of David came down to the rescue of this one little boy. These were dark and troubling times as Satan, using the paganism that was imported into the land by Ahab, tries to blot out the line of the Messiah. It was in such a dark time that Yahweh raised up two great prophets, man, men named Elijah and Elisha. Look at 1 Kings chapter 17. Here's where we first meet Elijah. Elijah the Tishbite, chapter 17 of 1 Kings verse 1. Now, Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the cellar, settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab. Now, this is the first time he ever appears. You've got to get the picture. Remember that Jezebel had set out to erase the worship of Yahweh from the land. She had brought in Baal worshiper at this Baal worship. At this point, 400 prophets of Baal were on the government payroll in the north. and Elijah shows up at the palace. I can promise you this: when his name was announced, a hush came over the throne room and gasps were probably heard because Elijah's name in Hebrew is Eliyahu, which means, My God is Yahweh.
1: That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with Part 7 of his series, An Aerial View of the Old Testament. Tom will bring you Part 8 on our next program. Join us then, won't you? Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And be sure to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting the thewordunleashed.org. That's the WordUnleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory